been studying the book of Acts together, and we come to Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 24. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just wave, and they'll put one in your hand, and it'll be marked to our study uh, where we're studying this morning for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that uh, a gift from us to you uh, today. Five verses, Rome, uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, miracle that is in each of our hands this morning, uh, known as the Bible, as your word. We thank you, Lord, that our spirit needs the nourishment of it, the instruction from it, as much as our physical bodies need to have physical food in order to sustain us. We thank you for the diversity of your revelation of yourself and of your truth that is in uh, in your Bible, and Lord, we thank you for uh, the unique and important truth that is uh, bound up and expressed in these five verses that we will study this morning. Would you freshly fill each of us with your Holy Spirit, and would you give us, super, us a supernatural ability to hear your voice speak to each one of us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, it records for us both the end of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of his third missionary journey. Following 18 months of ministry in the city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul uh, formally brought his second missionary journey uh, to an end by returning to his sending church or his home church, which was located in Antioch in Syria. The journey home covered a distance of about 1,500 um, miles, and it included significantly a stop in the city of Ephesus on the way, and that's recorded in verses 19 through 21. And when Paul makes this brief stop in Ephesus, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue and he began uh, to reason with the Jews there and to show how it is that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah based upon the Old Testament Scriptures. 
Interestingly enough, his message in that synagogue was very, very well received uh, by uh, the Jews there, and the members of the synagogue, in fact, uh, desired that Paul would stay even longer and continue his ministry and the word to them, but Paul wasn't unwilling, uh, wasn't able to do that at the moment as he was eager uh, not only to return home to Antioch, but also to uh, go to Jerusalem in order to keep one of the uh, Jewish religious uh, feasts. Now, a married couple who were now ministering side by side with Paul at this point, a man by the name of Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who Paul met in uh, Corinth because they, uh, Aquila and Paul were tent makers by trade. They no doubt served side by side with one another in the city of Corinth and had become co-laborers and the Lord developed a very significant relationship with one another. And so when Paul begins to make his way back toward Antioch he, and he stops in Ephesus, they travel uh, with him uh, to the city. But when they get to Ephesus and Paul is now ready to depart, Paul leaves them there in Ephesus in order to continue the work that was begun there until he would arrive formally almost a year later to begin his uh, uh, second uh, missionary journey. Verse 23, in a very understated way, describes the beginning of Paul's third missionary uh, journey, where we're told that he uh, revisited churches that he had established on the previous two missionary journeys in order to strengthen the Christians there, uh, cities like Derby and Lystra and Iconium, uh, before then returning to the city of Ephesus in order to now help establish and to found a very, very significant church uh, in the early church, the church there in the city of uh, Ephesus, which then becomes the main focus of uh, chapter 19. But between the end of the second missionary journey and the formal start of the third missionary journey, in terms of, of the narrative here, uh, two really massive events in terms of uh, church history. The end of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, the beginning of his third missionary journey. The Holy Spirit does something uh, very significant here in the narrative and that he takes a pause. There's a parenthesis. He kind of gathers his breath and says, before I want to begin this priceless narrative concerning the early church and the establishment of it in the world, before I move on to that, I must take a moment to describe to you uh, this man by the name uh, of Apollos. And so he introduces us to this man named Apollos, not only to educate us in the start of uh, Apollos' ministry, which would become a very significant and influential ministry in the early church, but I think also to teach us a very important lesson from the life of Apollos that applies very strongly to each and every one of us as Christians today in our private lives and in our Christian service. 
Apollo's arrival in Ephesus and his introduction to Aquila and to Priscilla is described for us here. Apparently, while ministering in Ephesus and awaiting Paul's return there, and evidently they were, Aquila and Priscilla were attending the Jewish synagogue in the meantime as well. One Sabbath day, a recent arrival to the city of Ephesus walks into the synagogue. And he is a Jewish teacher who was then given the floor that morning in the synagogue in order to deliver the homily, in order to deliver the application from the Jewish Scriptures uh, to those attending uh, the synagogue. And doubtless, I think, to the shock of Aquila and Priscilla, and I think certainly to their pleasant surprise, uh, this man proceeded to then boldly preach New Testament truth. He began to preach something resembling the gospel, and this man was none other than Apollos. We notice the description of Apollos that is given us here by the Holy Spirit, and the description is very significant. There's no wasted detail when the Holy Spirit is the author of something. And one of the things that we learn immediately about Apollos is that he was a very, very uh, gifted and talented and advantaged man. Notice in verse 24 that he is described as a Jew. And then we're told further in verse 24 that he was born in Alexandria. And Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of, the north, of northern Egypt. It was a center for education. It was a center for philosophy. It was a university town. It was famous in the ancient world for its library, which ultimately contained 700,000 volumes, which is remarkable when you realize that every single book in that time in human history uh, was handwritten. It was a city that was utterly dominated by Greek or Hellenistic culture. It was a center for Greek uh, culture. There was also in uh, Alexandria, a large Jewish colony. In New Testament times, Jews made up about one-third of the population of the city. So it was not only a center for Greek or Grecian uh, learning and culture, it was also a center for Jewish culture and uh, Jewish literature and learning. It was the Jews of Alexandria who provided the world with the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this is the city that Paul, that Apollos was born in, that he was raised in. And here in, in Alexandria, he is steeped not only in Jewish scriptures and Jewish culture, but also heavily steeped in the Greek, Hellenistic, Gentile culture and learning. Uh, there wasn't a, a more cosmopolitan city in this kind of a way in the entire Roman Empire. If there was one place that God could put a person or raise a person in order for them to be exposed to and, and have the broadest exposure to both Jewish culture and Greek culture all at the same time, it was Alexandria. And all of this produced a very unique individual in Apollos. 
And all of this ultimately produced a very, very valuable instrument for God's purposes. Apollos was doubtless a highly educated man. But you notice that his gifting and his talent didn't end there. Third, we're told in verse 24 that he was also an eloquent man. And so here you have a man who was not only highly educated, but also possessed the ability to communicate what he knew and to be able to communicate it with great eloquence. He was an artist of sorts. He spoke as an artist paints. And what paint is to the artist, words were to Apollos. Not in order to draw attention to himself or for any kind of self-aggrandizement, but for the purpose of communication. He was a man who knew how to use words in order to express the beauty of the truth, the depth of the truth that he was endeavoring to communicate, to cause within the audience something within them that would provoke thought and consideration and appreciation for the truth that he taught and that he preached. There's a certain kind of man who has a tremendous ability to learn and to amass knowledge but he has no gift to communicate that knowledge, and so very few people can bear to listen to him. And then there is another type of man or woman who can have the exact opposite problem. Here he or she is, they possess a great skill in terms of communication, but he doesn't have anything to say of substance. He's highly entertaining, but the listener leaves his presence empty and unsatisfied. And Apollos was this wonderful, unique kind of individual who possessed that rare combination of both eloquence and substance. But the description doesn't end there. Notice in verse 25 that Apollos was also a man of great passion. He is described as being fervent in spirit. And the word fervent means to boil, literally. And you think about those words. It's one thing to say them in a sermon, then it's another thing to stop and to consider them, to think about boiling uh, in a speaker and what that uh, means in a speaker. It means that Apollos spoke the truth that he spoke not only with eloquence, but with great force. He spoke it with great authority, and I personally think that one of the most wonderful things to experience in all of life is to see and to hear great learning and communication skills coupled with a great passion. When the listener recognizes that the speaker is not only uh, is thoroughly engaged in the subject that he is communicating, it is when the listener has the sense that the speaker not only has the message, but the message also has the speaker. And today, interestingly enough, I think the great challenge for anyone teaching anything at all today, but certainly teaching spiritual things today, is that expressing passion while communicating spiritual things is becoming more and more rare. And I think perhaps in large part it's because of the weakness of the constitution of people that are cultured our culture is currently uh, producing and forming today. This kind of thing frightens them. It threatens them. They're quick to label it as hate speech or as fanaticism or bigotry or intolerance. And so what happens within the culture and even within the Christian uh, culture 
is that even the greatest issues of life are proclaimed and they're discussed and they're debated with the same emotion that someone might exhibit in describing a tuna fish sandwich. And we can come to forget that this fervency of spirit is a virtue in a child of God and in a servant of God. When I'm listening to a man or a woman discuss the great issues in life, yes, I like them to know what they're talking about. I like them to be able to communicate it well. But I also like to hear some passion, something that tells me that they actually believe uh, what it is that they are communicating, and again, that the message has not only a grip upon their minds, but also a grip upon their hearts. There is the story about David Hume, the famous uh, 18th century uh, British philosopher who rejected historic Christianity, and he was once walking through the city of London, and he met a friend who was hurrying down that same London street, and he called out to his friend, and he asked him where he was going. And his friend told him that he was off to hear George Whitfield, the, the famous 19th century preacher, both in England and in America, that he was going off to hear George Whitfield preach. And Hume said to his friend, but surely you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? And his friend responded, no, I don't, but he does. There's something powerful about that. And glowingly, the Holy Spirit describes Apollos as fervent in spirit. But as wonderful as, as education and oratory skills and passion are, they are utterly wasted unless they are provided a great theme, unless they can attach themselves to a great theme. And Apollos was a man who not only was also a man who possessed a great theme, indeed an inexhaustible theme, for we're told in verse 24 that he was mighty in the Scriptures. That is, that he was mighty in his understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures, possessing thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. And what's described here in the wording of it in the original language is more than just possessing an understanding of the Scriptures on some kind of elementary way or some kind of a uh, surface level. It communicates here that Apollos had mastered them in the sense that he understood them deeply. He had the ability to look at the Scriptures and to not just see what was laying on the surface, but to see the implications of what it was that God was communicating here, the intent of the Holy Spirit. What is the point of the passage? What is its application? He saw the interconnectedness of the Scriptures, the implications of what the teaching of one passion passage had upon another passage of Scripture, and indeed the message of the entire book, what Paul would later describe to Timothy as the ability to rightly divide the word of truth. And his understanding of the Scriptures was deep, and we're told that there was also, as a result, a depth to the content of his teaching and his preaching. But notice further in verse 25 that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And then further in verse 25 that he spoke and he taught accurately the things of the Lord. I think that oftentimes... We can feel forced to choose between passion in a speaker and accuracy. Sometimes you can have a passionate speaker uh, who lacks accuracy, and so their trustworthiness 
to declare accurately what the Bible passage is teaching is lacking. But in Apollos' ministry, he didn't force any man or woman into any kind of choice like that concerning his teaching. He was both eloquent and passionate, but he was a careful teacher, and he possessed a great concern for accuracy. His motive wasn't to be clever. His motive wasn't uh, in order to be considered novel as a teacher. His supreme desire to what, it wasn't to find something in the passage that no one had ever seen before, where after you've learned, listened to someone uh, teach something, you say to yourself, I never saw that in the passage before only to go home and look at the passage once again and discover upon reflection that the reason that you hadn't seen it before is for, uh, simply because it simply doesn't exist within uh, the passage. Now, Apollos was an accurate teacher of God's Word. He was a careful teacher. And when you look at what the Holy Spirit does, how carefully He paints this man before us, you realize what an extraordinary man he was, and what an extraordinary description the Holy Spirit gives to us. But I am personally convinced that all of that that we have just laid out merely lays the foundation for the single great thing that the Holy Spirit wants each of us to learn from this man this morning. Because I am convinced that to know all of that about him but to know only that about him is to know nothing about Apollos. It is to remain completely in the dark as to the true key of his greatness, the thing that allowed God to ultimately entrust to him a place of great influence in the kingdom of God. And in this vein, I want you to notice in verse 25 that we're told that his message was incomplete. He knew only the baptism of John. So he understood the ministry and the baptism of John the Baptist. He understood, we're told in verse 25, the way, which was an early name for Christianity in the book of Acts. But it appears that he was unfamiliar with some areas of Christian doctrine that included baptism uh, in the name of Jesus and what that baptism in the name of Jesus represented. What made Apollos great in the eyes of the Holy Spirit what was that Apollos was supremely a teachable man, and as a teachable man, a humble man. Notice in verse 26, on that Sabbath day, as he spoke boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus. Paul's friends, Aquila and Priscilla, were present, and they noticed that he, what he taught regarding the Christian faith was accurate as far as it went, but that it was also incomplete. And so after the service, they left the synagogue, and they went down to Baja Fresh, and they ordered tacos, and they laughed over the ignorance of the teacher uh, who taught at the synagogue uh, that, uh, that morning. Or, you know, they uh, cornered him after the sermon uh, somewhere in the synagogue and then began to argue with him about, you know, what he had, should have said but he didn't say. Or maybe, as is the custom today, uh, they went home 
and uh, made uh, the discernment ministries within uh, the body of Christ, aware that someone had taught something incomplete uh, in the synagogue. And before the day was over, these discernment ministries uh, exposed him as a heretic and a false teacher before the whole world. Now, that's the in ministry environment that we find ourselves in today. Uh, but thankfully, Aquila and Priscilla were made of something different. And you notice what they did in verse 26. They took him aside, we're told, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took him aside. They dealt with him privately. They discussed his incompleteness with him uh, privately. And this is a, a, an example of tremendous wisdom and maturity on their part. And to teach people in this regard as privately as possible is a wonderful thing to do and something that the Holy Spirit even takes notice of here. Why? Because it is like God. God deals with us, our imperfections, our incompletenesses, uh, the growth that we need to make in all of our lives and in our Christian service as privately as can possibly be dealt with. And they were uh, like God in this, and I'm sure that Apollos appreciated it. People always do. But God took note of it, and it pleased him as well. And then they explained to him the way of God more accurately, we're told. And so they explained to Apollos, this is the tone of their instruction to Apollos. They didn't make fun of him. Uh, they didn't deride him or make him feel foolish or come across as better than him. And when I read this concerning him, and, and I think to myself, praise the Lord for Aquila's and Priscilla's, even yet today, who take the time and then sometimes even more importantly, take the risk to give a helpful hint to a fellow minister or to a fellow Christian in order to make their Christian life or their Christian ministry even more effective. And to his credit, Apollos was completely teachable. He received and accepted their instruction. And there is a beautiful humility that's demonstrated in this. Very, very often, even in Christian circles, people with the kind of talent and gifting and calling that Apollos had, and even men and women with far less gifting and talent and calling, can cease to be humble or to be teachable. I want you to notice also that here the great and talented and gifted Apollos was willing to be instructed, not just by anyone, uh, but by a tent maker and his wife, a woman, in that very patriarchal culture uh, of uh, the early church. Here is Apollos. He has been educated in the classrooms of Alexandria. He has listened to some of the greatest teachers, not only in the world at his time, but in all of history. 
and he had been raised in a city with a library containing 700,000 books, and yet when he realized that he had something to learn from these two humble servants of the Lord, he was not only willing to do so, but he was eager to do so. No defensiveness in him at all. And Apollos was eager to learn from anyone and everyone who could teach him and make him more effective in his Christian life and in his service to the Lord. And so Apollos was a gifted man. He was a humble man, a teachable man. But the passage also teaches us that he was an exalted man, verses 27 and 28. And it was because he was a humble man that he also became a promoted man, a man to whom God entrusted an even greater place of influence within the body of Christ and within the kingdom of God. And you notice in verse 27 that the humility and teachableness of Apollos, it allowed the Christian leadership there in Ephesus to then heartily recommend him by letter uh, to Corinth as a truly spiritual man. And when Apollos ultimately makes his way to Corinth, he had a tremendous and a wonderful influence for the Lord there. We're told that he became a great and strong encouragement to those who were Christians, who already loved the Lord. But he also became a great apologist for the Christian faith there, showing the Jews there uh, from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, as we're told in verse 28. Apollos teaches us that it is supremely this thing called humility that will ultimately have the single greatest say in where any of us end up in life and in terms of the effectiveness and the influence of our Christian service. Years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and I heard a pastor get up and speak, and I heard him declare concerning a recent survey at the time in which Christians were asked, what is the single greatest thing that you desire in a pastor? And we would have expected that the answer would have been any of those handful of things that the Holy Spirit brought out concerning Apollos as he lays out the description of Apollos in the early part uh, of the passage. But in response to that question in this survey of Christians within the churches, what is the single greatest thing that you desire in a pastor? Interestingly enough, the answer was not education or eloquence or charisma, but it was humility. It was humility, confirming the very thing that the Holy Spirit is teaching us and that the life of Apollos has been teaching us for 2,000 years years. But what is true of a congregation and what is true of a pastor is also true in life in general. It is true of the boss. It is true of a co-worker, of a teammate, of a husband or a wife, of a fellow student or uh, of a father or a mother or a child or a neighbor. It is the humble person that people like to be around. It is always the humble person that we root for in life, that we root for in a movie or in a TV show. And then most significantly for us as Christians, it is the humble person 
that other people are willing to give a place of influence in their lives. And concerning influence in the kingdom of God, whatever our calling might be as Christians, it is unfailingly true over the long haul that our advancement in terms of influence and in that calling and the influence that God gives us in that calling is determined ultimately and supremely by our humility as opposed to our natural talent, our God-given gifts, or our calling. Because without humility, over time, all of those things will become shipwreck. But how wonderful it is when a man or a woman of God comes to know this sooner rather than later in life. And when we come to realize that there's no need to choose between the one or the other, but that both can be present in our lives at the same time, great natural talent, God-given gifts and calling, as well as humility, and then to see in Apollos the wonderful dynamic that occurs in and through a person's life when this is true, all of this is true of them. The influence that God is then able to entrust to them, whether as a church leader or as a father, a mother, a neighbor, or in the workplace or at a school. And all of this is completely consistent with what the Bible teaches from one end to the other. From the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 9, for you note-takers. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. The apostle Paul wrote in this vein in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 5, and likewise you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James makes the same point, only broadly applying it to everyone in the body of Christ, not those who are younger. James chapter 4, verse 6, but he, that is God, gives more grace. And therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Jesus himself taught, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Well, this subject of pride and humility, these are huge subjects in the Bible. And so I close in looking at very, very briefly, uh, in limiting our focus to the subject of pride and humility and looking at the three things that are uh, so evident to us uh, in the passage, this passage, uh, in this vein. I want you to notice first as a mark of humility as Christians that we should, like Apollos, always possess a strong hunger and desire to grow spiritually. That was the heart of Apollos. 
and it is an expression of spiritual pride when a person stops growing uh, spiritually. And I say this directly, but I say it affectionately and with a heart of love. And this kind of thing happens all of the time, whereas Christians and myself, I'm tempted to do the same thing, to say this is as far as I want to grow as a Christian. This is as far as I want to grow in my knowledge of the Word of God or in God's uh, use of me. This is as far as I want, uh, again, to grow as a Christian. And so we stop after one year or five years or ten years, and then we stay in that spiritual maturity or immaturity than the rest of our lives without realizing that this is utterly an expression of self-will, and it's an expression of pride, and there was nothing of it in Apollos' life. Apollos was eager to continue to grow spiritually, and he wasn't alone in the early church in this way. We think famously of the Apostle Paul in this regard, who wrote his letter to the church at Philippi after being a Christian for 30 years, after being an active Christian service for 25 years. And he declares to that church, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and therefore let us, he wrote to them and us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And immediately before Paul's death, and he died a martyr's death for his faith in Christ, he wrote to Timothy, come to me, as he was imprisoned in that Roman prison. And one of the things that he told Timothy was, bring the books and especially bring the parchments, those means by which he might continue to learn the Word of God and grow in the Word of God. When the God and the Bible are the subjects, and Jesus in Christ's likeness is the practical standard that we as Christians are desiring to achieve, then there will always be room to grow all of the days of our lives, and there is no excuse for ceasing to do so. Second, as we've already discussed, humility in the passage is expressed in a willingness to be taught, in being teachable. No matter how much our natural talent, no matter how significant the gifting that God has given to us or the greatness of the calling that He has upon our life. Again, as Paul declared to the church at Philippi, teachableness is not a mark of weakness or immaturity in a Christian, but it is a mark of maturity. And then third and finally, humility is expressed in a willingness to be taught by God through whatever human instrument that He chooses in order to do so. 
I think that so often we think, especially in Christian ministry, especially in the position that I have within the body of Christ, there's that tendency to think that the only person that can teach me something is someone who has even greater gifting or a greater calling or greater experience or greater influence in the body of Christ. But it isn't just the pastor alone. It's all of us. We think that only person that can have something to say to us is someone who is greater in some way than us in terms of, of all of, uh, of these uh, kind of things. But there is that the, uh, you know, there, it, it, the importance here is Apollos uh, teaches us of being able to receive from and to receive instruction from uh, those that don't excel us in terms of education or life experience or talent or even spiritual influence by virtue of God's calling, but they perhaps hold a lower station within life. Each and every one of us, and whatever God has called us to do throughout the week of our life, we're in a little microcosm. We're in a little bit of a bubble. We walk with God. We serve God. We serve people. God has gifted us and He's ta- given us the talent to do that in these particular environments that He has, he has done so. But it's easy to inbreed within a particular environment, and it's so important that uh, others from outside of that environment and out, uh, from outside of our regular Christian experience be able to speak from that outside uh, into our lives and just the fact that they're outside of our world and can see it from the outside sometimes makes them uh, speak something to us that we would otherwise be blind to. It isn't unlikely that Apollos exceeded uh, Aquila and Priscilla in all of these areas, and yet Apollos possessed the humility that allowed him to be corrected and instructed by them concerning spiritual things, and the result was that he became even more fruitful in God's call upon his life. Paulus was an educated man. He was an eloquent man. He was a man who was fervent in spirit, a man with a great theme, a man mighty in the Scriptures, astonishing really. But all of those things would have been wasted had he not also been a teachable man, a humble man. And teachableness is so important in the Christian life and in ministry And it is humility and teachableness that will give us an influence for the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, the talent never will and education alone never will. And if you were to ask me to bet on here is one person in some kind of a calling within the body of Christ and they have all of the education and all of the talent and all of the natural ability and all of the gifting and all of the calling, but they have a lack of humility and then someone who is far less gifted in terms of natural talent, uh, far less influential in terms of, uh, of it within the kingdom of God and so forth, and yet they possess humility, and you say, bet your fortune on the one or the other. I would always bet my fortune, however feeble it might be, upon the man or the woman who possesses uh, humility. When we think of Apollos, I think the tendency is to think of 
him and his greatness in the early church solely in terms of his eloquence. But here we learn that the true source of his greatness was his humility. For God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Let's stand together and we'll pray. And I want us just to take a moment as we stand before the Lord and to allow in the privacy of our own hearts to allow this great theme of humility to impact us at least in one area of our life before we leave here today and maybe two or three think about the two or three most significant hats that you wear in life and that I wear as well in our marriage in our attitude toward our parents and toward authority in general in our workplace in our ministries in our neighborhood in our relationships and influence within our extended family and to just take one two or three things and to leave each of us here today with the desire to give some thought to how well we are expressing humility and teachableness in those environments and in those relationships that we desire to be so influential within. Speak to us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit right now in each one of our hearts, those one or two things where you want us to examine and to express humility in a greater measure. We bless you, Lord. We bless you. Now fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would take the lessons of this passage that we looked at this morning and by your Holy Spirit, give it a deeper place and a deeper reality and understanding and certainly a knowledge by experience than can ever be produced by a man declaring the words but to bear witness to it by your Holy Spirit within each of our lives as we bring to you our great desire to be influential for you and your kingdom in this world in these last days 
and we pray it and ask it in Jesus' name.